Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Till We Have Faces. I almost said the wrong thing. Let's call it the Mythgard Academy, in which we have session nine of Till We Have Faces. That is precisely where we are tonight. Um, and tonight uh, is a big session. We are going to be looking at the big apocalypse in the middle of the book. Um, this is uh, this is a turn the turning point in the story. Um, and really kind of the second biggest moment uh, of the entire book, really. The ending is the biggest moment of the entire book. Um, but uh, this moment is uh, pretty huge. And I have uh, a certain amount of confidence that we'll actually make it through chapters 14 and 15 tonight. That is our goal, so we'll see how we do. But before we get started, I want to fulfill the promise that I made last week and do a drawing, because it's our fundraising campaign, and I want to do a drawing, as I promised I would, our weekly drawing uh, for all the folks who filled out our Mythgard Academy form. Uh, put your name and email into the form. Um, so I've got my I've got my dice, uh, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna roll. There we go, and we have the winner is. Takako Tasai. Takako won. Congratulations, Takako. All right. Excellent. Takako's always wishing she could take all of the space classes and all of the MA classes. Um, awesome. Congratulations, Takako. Um, and we'll do another drawing next week. So um, I'm going to, I'll, re when we redistribute the link, uh, it's the same link as last week. So you just, you can fill in the same form again. Um, and let me uh, let me make sure I get the link again. So I'll give you the link once more one more time here. Um, okay. And there is the link. So you can go ahead and um, you can go ahead and submit that again now. And we'll start we'll start afresh from uh, this new point next week. Here we go. Excellent. Um, very good. Just making a mark as to where the old one stopped. There we go. Now we'll remember next time. Okay. Very good. Very good. Okay. Congratulations, Takako. We'll do another drawing next week. Um, now, let's get into the text because we've got big chapters to discuss. So, last week, the last two weeks, we've been looking at Orawal's deliberations as she's been um, contemplating um, as she's been contemplating what to do right she had her meeting with Psyche uh, and she's been considering how to how to respond to this how to interpret this um, and there have really been sort of three options um, one is the the reverent but cautious acknowledgement of the gods that Bardia um, lives out, right? Um, he reveres the gods, um, but he really hopes that they won't pay attention to him, right? Uh, and he, his interpretation, of course, of what was going on with Psyche is that the god was, uh, that, that the god was coming to her, right? Um, but it was the hideous shadow brute, which is why it didn't want to be seen. Um, and then, of course, the fox 
has his interpretation of what was going on, that it was a, you know, a man, a beggar, uh, or, a th- or a thief, or a murderer, um, some, some criminal or outcast, um, who was deceiving Psyche. Um, and he thought that that was the perfectly obvious explanation of the thing. But there was a third reading of it as well. And that was Orwell's own response that she herself was fighting against often and was sort of pushing down. And that was the possibility that Psyche was telling the truth. That it would be, in fact, the right thing to leave Psyche in her happiness. Um, And really, those were kind of almost separated, right? One was, could she dare to believe that what Psyche said was true, could she be willing to believe even the vision that was given to her of the palace? And that was not something she entertained very much, right? But it came up, not just initially in the early parts of her first conversation with Psyche, but um, but even even later, at the even at the end. And I don't just mean at the end when she saw the vision. I mean at the end of her contemplations, like at the end of chapter 14, um, after she's talked to both Bardia and the fox, she's still thinking, maybe, maybe, right? But related to that is, do I just let her be happy, right? Even if, even if she is being, no matter, like, does it matter what's actually happening, right? Maybe I just let her be happy. So, um, that's, um, that's where we left off. So, Let's pick back up there. Beginning of chapter 15. She returns. Uh, Bardia can't come with her this time, so she returns in the company of the taciturn Graham, um, who was chosen because he never speaks. So uh, he is uh, uh, one of the most um, uh, quiet, uh, introverted members of the guard. And so um, he... Uh, though not seeming to like the adventure much, is taking her up to the mountain. So we begin with uh, her thoughts as she's going up the mountain. Uh, Beginning of 14. Did I say 15? Beginning of 14. Sorry. Yes. Beginning of chapter 14. Suddenly there rose up before me the memory of Psyche in the mountain valley. Sorry, I, I, we did this at the end of last time. This is this is a passage at the very end of chapter 13. Um, I, I wanted to reread this um, to make sure that we have this in our minds as we get into chapter 14 and the actual meeting. Suddenly there rose up before me the memory of Psyche in the mountain valley, bright face, brimming over with joy. My terrible temptation came back to leave her in that full happy dream, whatever came of it, to spare her, not to bring her down from it into misery. Must I be to her an avenging fury, not a gentle mother? And part of my mind now was saying, Do not meddle. Anything might be true. You are among marvels that you do not understand. Carefully, carefully, who knows what ruin you might pull down on her head and yours? But with the other part of me, I answered that I was indeed her mother and her father too, all she had of either that my love must be grave and provident, not slipshod and indulgent, that there is a time for love to be stern. After all, what was she but a child? If the present case were beyond my understanding, how much more must it be beyond hers? Children must obey. It had hurt me long ago when I made the barber pull out the thorn. Had I not nonetheless done well? 
I heartened my resolution. I knew now what which of the two which of two things I must do, and no later than on the day which would soon be breaking. <clears throat> All right. Um, so that big paragraph there really helps us to remember the complicated situation that Orwell is in, right? Notice how both of the two things that I was just referring to come up there in the first half of the paragraph. They're related to each other, but they're not identical, right? One is what she calls the terrible temptation to leave Psyche to her fool happy dream, right? Not to spare her, not to bring her down from it into misery. Even if she is deluded, even if she is being deceived, she is happy. Must I be to her an avenging fury, not a gentle mother? She knows, she feels she's going to cause her suffering if she wakes her up. If she is in a full happy dream, well, she's in a dream and waking up from that is going to be harsh. But she acknowledges, she characterizes this as a temptation, right? That is to say, she does not feel that's, she knows it's not the right thing. She feels the desire to do it, but she knows it's not the right thing. And she even calls it a terrible temptation, right? Um, but then, remember, we get there is where we get the segue. Part of my mind was saying, do not meddle. Anything might be true. You are among marvels that you do not understand. Who knows what ruin you might pull down on her head and yours? So, two things about this that I would emphasize. One is, again, this is connected. She segues into this from that terrible temptation, right? Um, that is to say, in her mind, let Psyche continue in her delusion or deception is like a first cousin, in a sense, right? To the thought that says, I'm among marvels that I don't understand. Anything might be true, right? Um, they're not the same, but they're connected in some sense, in her mind. Those are the two things that are kind of together on the one side of this equation, right? Um, and what it sounds like, in a sense, is that there is... Because, of course, the foundation, right? The foundation... There are two main issues at play in the first part, in the terrible temptation. One is the gentle mother impulse, right? The loving impulse to... Sorry. The loving impulse to see Psyche be happy, right? Um, just, just to, to, to see her be pleased, even if it's not in her best interest long term, right? Or even short term, maybe. Um, and that's why it's a terrible temptation. But of course, the other part of, so that, but that's the other part. One is the, the benevolent impulse, the loving impulse, but the other is the knowledge, right? The confidence that to do it is, that it's the wrong thing to do. 
the assertion, the assumption even, that she clearly knows better than Psyche. If she did not have the premise, even here, that she definitely knows better than Psyche, she wouldn't call it a temptation, right? She wouldn't characterize it as a full happy dream. So one of the ways in which we're segueing from the first thought to the second thought there, right? From the terrible temptation to the um, anything might be true thought is, it seems, an erosion of confidence, right? But, but, but what if I am wrong and she's right, right? That willingness to question that, um, in one sense, that's the path that her mind leads her down here, right? From the terrible temptation to the acknowledgement, well, anything might be true. Maybe she's right and I'm wrong. And notice the parallel. If she leaves her to her full happy dream, she's not bringing her down from her dream into misery, right? To try to wake her up from the dream would be to bring her down into misery. But to try to pull her out if Psyche's right and Orowal's wrong would be pulling ruin down on her head as well as yours, right? So that idea of that fall, the fall from happiness to misery, the fall from grace to ruin, right, are paralleled in those two thoughts, right? Um, and in both, and this is one of the one of the ways. So although the two impulses, the 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 terrible temptation impulse and the anything might be true impulse, are in a sense in opposition to each other. They also, as I say, they're kind of first cousins. They also kind of rhyme with each other in this sense. Both of the, in both of them, what she's, what she's, that both of them push her in the same direction, which is don't do anything. Don't do anything because if you do, you could bring about Psyche's fall. Either her fall from happiness, even dream happiness, into misery, or her fall from grace and favor and privilege into ruin, right? Both of those, therefore, in opposition as they are, though as I say, they also fit, they also rhyme with each other, um, they're both together on the opposite pole against that other part of her, which says, I am her mother and her father, and my love must be grave and provident. There's no time to be indulgent. It's time for love to be stern. And she remembers how much it had hurt her when the barber pulled out the thorn, right? To see medicinal pain being inflicted. She didn't want to do that, but she knows. She is old and wise enough to know, Orowal is, that that's the right thing to do. Why is she Psyche's father also, Jackie? Because Psyche's father is horrible, right? Um, Orowal several times has mentioned the functional abdication of Psyche's father, right? But I think, Jackie, it's, it's kind of, um, it's double 
sided, right? On the one hand, she says it as a judgment against Psyche's father, the king, her own father, right? Um, she means it as a statement about how terrible he is and uh, as a dad, like, he's useless. So she has had no choice but to step in and be the father as well as the mother because no one was doing either role, right? So she has taken both roles upon herself. But of course, remember how much Orwell looks like her dad sometimes, right? And so there is a kind of memory. Um, to some extent, her condemnation of Psyche's father kind of bounces back on herself a little bit too. Um, that is to say, in that different sense, it's sometimes a little too uncomfortably true that she is Psyche's father. She's just like Psyche's father too often. Um, yeah, and Jackie, you were right. Um, there are times when she, when the fox is kind of like the dad in their little alternate family. Yes. And the fox thinks of himself that way, right? He thinks of Psyche like his daughter, as he thinks of Orwell as his daughter, right? Um, but remember there have been several occasions on which Orwell has already, during this crisis, ever since the, um, you know, the revelation that Psyche was to be sacrificed, where Orwell has kind of grudged Psyche's relationship with the fox and kind of, in her own mind, sort of distanced him from her, right? Um, yeah, Mary, you're right. He does, her father also did kind of send her to her death. That That's also, I agree, a black mark against him from a paternal standpoint. Um, um, yes, yes. Um, but uh, exactly as um, Morgul Hamster was just pointing out, um, there too, we will soon see Orwal resembling her father. But more on that anon. Um, now, we can, uh, having thought carefully about those first two movements, right? The, the terrible temptation and the, um, the, 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 the terrible temptation and the anything might be true we can see one of the major movements that has happened, right? Um, what she's done is essentially returned to the terrible temptation frame of mind in at least one crucial way. And that way is in believing with sublime confidence that she obviously knows better than Psyche what's what. Um, she, after all, what was she but a child, right? The uh, infantilization of Psyche here. Um, remember, that's one of the things that she got angry at the fox about. The fox was upset to think about Psyche being deceived, Psyche being seduced, um, you know, by an outcast, by a, uh, by a criminal. Um, but remember, he started talking about, you know, what is marriage, but, uh, you know, the, um, the union of, like, you know, he who, you know, persuades with she who consents. And, you know, in other words, 
he was treating her like an adult. Um, and Orwell won't, right? Um, yeah, Orwell won't. What was she but a child? Um, and then that really telling sentence, if the present case were beyond my understanding, how much more must it be beyond hers? Since I'm the grown-up here, right, um, the one thing which is obviously an absurdity would be for her to understand the situation better than me. Right. Um, yeah, and Sarah, I agree. Orwell doesn't make the argument that Psyche is too young to be married, just too young to think or decide for herself in any way that goes against what Orwell wants. Yes, it's not about like, oh, no, no, she's too young to make up her mind. This is, um, uh, I remember having that conversation uh, with my wife's parents when we wanted to get married. Uh, they were a little uncertain. Um, it was one of those really fun cultural things. We were 23 when we got married. And, um, uh, you know, her parents were all like, are you sure you're not rushing into it? You're still both very young. You might want to think this through. And my family was all like, finally, we thought he'd never get married. Anyway, um, people get married young in my family. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, uh, point is, that's not the kind of discussion she's having here, right? Um, she's very much wanting to put, to keep Psyche, to convince herself that Psyche is still, like, is a child who must obey, right? It's all about the relationship between them. It's not anything about objectively about Psyche's own, um, uh, Psyche's own sort of external status. It's all about their relative relationship with each other, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and Feanaro, I think that that's perfectly fair. Um, that Orwell is living such a lonely life, um, that Orwell living such a lonely life impacts how she can see things from only one perspective. Yes, though the kind of qualification I'd give is that she was lonely. She hasn't been lonely. Um, there was this... Well, there are kind of several things, right? Um, yes, she was very lonely before Psyche. But there was still the fox before Psyche. And there was Redival from page one of the story. She was never actually alone though she felt lonely in lots of ways, and I'm not trying to, like, discount that, right? Um, the loneliness that seems to me most operative in Orwell's decisions and in her rationales is the future-oriented one, right? Where she is imagining what will her life be without Psyche. Um, there's a sense in which she is having a um, a sort of a rather special version of empty nest anxiety, right? Where she has formed so much of her own identity around 
Psyche and being Psyche's quasi-mom, right? That if Psyche were to leave, she would be nothing. And remember that Psyche herself, before the sacrifice, was saying things like, look, you know, sooner or later this was going to happen. Probably sooner, right? If it hadn't been human sacrifice, it would have been a different kind of human sacrifice, like me being sent off to marry, uh, you know, the son of a foreign king, in which case we also never would have seen each other again, right? That also would be a kind of death. Remember that speech. Um, or well, they want anything to do with that either. She was not, Psyche was thinking about it and ready to think about it. Um, Orwell was not, right? So it's, it's that idea of what would she be now without Psyche? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Um, so let's keep going. Having thought that through a little bit. All right. I went to the... This is chapter 14 now. I went to the ford. About a long bowshot from Graham. My heart was still as ice, heavy as lead, cold as earth. But I was free now from all doubting and deliberating. I set my foot on the first stone of the crossing and called Psyche's name. She must have been very close, for almost at once I saw her coming down to the bank. We might have been two images of love, the happy and the stern. She, so young, so bright face, joy in her eye and limbs. I, burdened and resolute, bringing pain in my hand. Let's um, pause for a second on another beautiful paragraph. Man, so good. Um, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, Lewis is an excellent composer of English sentences on his worst day. Um, the writing of Till We Have Faces contained few of his bad days. Um, but remember also the particular scene that um, he's playing off of here. If you remember, on the night after her first conversation with Psyche, remember she, she leaves Psyche and then goes back to Bardia, and there's that whole return to the mortal world thing, right? And the, the meal that they have around the fire and sleeping back to back and her being a little distracted by that and, uh, and, and her sleepless night, right? All those things. One of the fantasies she was having during her sleepless night was that she would, she would hear Psyche's voice calling out to her, Maya, Maya, and she would run down to the river to help her across, Right? And Orwell seems herself not to remember that connection, not to see that what she is doing is reversing. And, and, and oh, I, I stopped before making the main point that in that fantasy, what was that was a fantasy of comfort that she was she was it was a comforting fantasy to Orwell um, as she was trying to come to grips with things. And the reason it was comforting is that it restored their relationship, right? Where Psyche was the scared and needy one, and she, uh, Orwell, was the maternal and protective one, right? Gathering Psyche in to comfort her and guide her, 
Right. Um, and remember, that was that dynamic was very, very strong in their conversation uh, in the room with five sides before the sacrifice. Right. Um, here in this first paragraph, we see Orwell in in fact, not just in fantasy, but in fact, um, reversing that, right? She is the one who is calling out Psyche's name. Psyche, Psyche, coming down to the river, calling Psyche's name. And Psyche comes quickly. Uh, almost at once, I saw her coming down to the bank. Exactly how she described herself in her own fantasy, coming down to help Psyche over, right? And yet again, she's still is firmly convinced, even within this paragraph itself, firmly convinced that she's the grown-up here, right? That she's the one who knows what's what. And uh, Psyche is the one who needs guidance. Um, we might have been two images of love, the happy and the stern. Um, on the one hand, she doesn't begin by questioning Psyche's love, right? That is, they're, they're both images of love, right? She doesn't um, challenge or undermine Psyche or Psyche's lovingness, right? Um, and even her description, you know, her perception of Psyche's beauty, of course, she can't help that, right? Um, but even her description of happy love as young, bright face, joy in her eye and limbs. That's one, that's one vision of love. Um, she, Orwell, is the other image of love, the stern image of love, burdened and resolute, bringing pain in my hand. Um, you see, there's an irony here which is also, I think, if not, I think it's not at the absolute root, but it is near the root of Orwell's problem. If both of them are images of love, love for whom? What, what love are they indicating. Do you see what I mean? That is, the stern love that Orwell comes with is stern love for Psyche. The happy love that Psyche is experiencing, young, bright face, joy in her eye and limbs, is that love for Orwell? Yes. But it's also love for her husband. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, I think, again, is part of the problem. One of the things that we're seeing is the sternness of Orwell's love is all directed at Psyche, right? But Psyche's love is divided between Orwell and her husband. At least those are the two ways I think that Orwell feels it, that Orwell perceives it, right? But the irony is that it seems to me 
that Orowal is not understanding either one of those loves. Right? What she doesn't understand, which Psyche has tried to explain, but Orowal doesn't understand, is that she doesn't have less love for her just because she has a husband now. She still has... Her, her love for her Maya is undiminished and wouldn't be diminished by her love for her husband. But Orowal's love is, of course, not directed as much as she likes to convince herself 100% on Psyche. It's directed very significantly at herself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I see you guys talking about Brightface, and Jackie totally agree um, that we have both um, both Greek and uh, he and Hebrew, right? Greek and biblical associations with Brightface. Um, Brightface being the, the radiant light, especially from the face um, of one who has seen and encountered God. Um, most notably, Moses, of course, descending uh, from Mount Sinai. What, what did Moses do when he came down from Mount Sinai? No, I mean, okay. There's a lot of potential answers to that question. What did he do with his face when he comes down, right? And everyone's like, whoa, we're freaked out. Moses turned down the high beams. What did he do? He veiled his face. He put a veil on, right? Because he was too bright faced. Um, the reflected glory of God that shone from his face after his encounter with God was too much for the people. And he put a veil over his face. That might be important later. Similarly, um, the other big, major, really important um, bright face moment in the Bible. I think that's fair to say. On the one hand, um, on the one hand, uh, um, you've got Moses, and on the other hand, you have the transfiguration of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And remember, he also puts on a sort of veil at the end of that, right? Um, the glory of God is reflected in him, and he shines white, um, his clothes shining way whiter than anybody could bleach them. Like, no matter how good you are at bleaching things, like, no way you could get it as white. I love that description. Um, but anyway, it's such a home, it's such a homely moment in the gospel narratives. But um, anyway, um, so, um, but remember right afterwards, right, when his high beams get turned down, right, when the glory, when the light and the glory um, stops, Jesus immediately tells Peter, James, and John, who are up there with him, don't, don't tell anybody, right? Keep this to yourselves. Don't tell anybody about what you saw, right? Um, and um, so, again, it's a more metaphorical. It's not, it, Moses puts on a literal veil. Um, Jesus' veil is, is, is more uh, figurative. Uh, but that same, that same idea of, um, I'm going to continue covering my face. I'm not going to reveal uh, the glory uh, of my face in the same way. Um, is Brightface Lewis's coinage? What he said before... Now, I don't know the Greek word that he's talking about, but he was speaking as if there is a Greek word. Um, 
when Orwell first mentioned Orwell, the narrator first uses the word bright face. She ex- explicitly, she says she was so bright face as the Greeks would say. Um, that leads me to believe though. I don't know enough Greek to be able to put my finger on it. Um, that there is a Greek word here. Um, that like Greek has a word for this that English does not have. And so that Lewis is basically kind of like borrowing it. Um, uh, from Greek, the concept from Greek, more or less directly. Um, and um, uh, um, anyway, so um, yeah. I, again, I don't, I don't know what the Greek word is. Um, but as I say, it's not just the Bible exemplars that we should have in mind. Um, but the Greek exemplars, one of which we've already been given. Remember when Anchises wakes up in the myth that the fox is telling um, Orwell way back at the beginning, right after the fox came, um, and telling her the myth of Anchises and Aphrodite. And when, uh, when Anchises wakes up and he sees the goddess revealed in her glory and says, slay me for I have lain, you know, with the goddess. Um, that moment Right, she, um, Aphrodite, is bright face, and he doesn't use the word. The, the 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 English translation doesn't use the word there, right? But that's clearly the concept, right? Um, again, this revelation of glory, um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but um, yes. <laughs> can confirm, I do believe, in fact, that urine was used for bleach uh, in the ancient world. Yeah. Um, pretty sure. Pretty sure that that's the case. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Sorry. A little side discussion about exactly how uh, mortals go about bleaching things really well. That 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 that, that was how. Um, but, um, okay. Anyway. I... The bright-facedness of Psyche in her vision of love, therefore, seems also very relevant, right? It is the very revelation of reflected divinity in Psyche. Reflected, at least reflected, right? Um, If not, in fact, an indication of her own progressive apotheosis, right? Her the, the, remember how she seemed to be growing taller, right? She, how she's getting stronger, all, all, all of those things. Um, she seems to be transitioning from mortal to god, to goddess. And the bright face observations seem to be a kind of acknowledgement um, of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. So let's, but I only read the first paragraph. You spoke last time, I said, of the day we got the thorn out of your hand. We hurt you that time, Psyche, but we did right. Those who love must hurt. I must hurt you again today. And Psyche, you are still little more than a child. You cannot go your own way. You will let me rule and guide you. <laughs> um, Orwell begins uh, with a very hard line. Right, she begins in a very strong parental talk here. Um, 
And JJ, she is speaking down to her. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you are still little more than a child. Now, the thing that I would recall, and I, I want to be fair to or I mean, look, needless to say, this chapter is going to present Orwal in just about her worst light in the entire book. So, I, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, go to massive extremes to try to defend her. But it's important to remember that she I don't know I am I read this paragraph this evening as the parent of a 15 year old and a 20 year old and I can testify to the temptation um, to speak to my adult and almost adult children uh, and still operate within a, the framework that says you are still little more than a child. And it's even like kind of true in its own ways. And I certainly am well aware of the uh, many, many years of experience that I have over them. Um, and I, it's very hard for me not to remember and imagine my, you know, to remember all the times when I spoke to them when they were children. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, anyway, like it's all, um, uh, it's all, I, I can resonate with this pretty clearly. Like, so is she talking down to her? Absolutely she is. Right? Is she wrong to do this? Oh, yeah. Psyche has shown her... The, we've been looking already way back from when they were in the, in the, in the room with five sides. The, the greatly increased clarity and sophistication. Like, that is, the comparative insight and sophistication of, um, of Psyche's processing of things compared to Orwell's, right? I mean, we do not, if there is a discrepancy in their wisdom and experience, it would seem almost the opposite, but I can't blame Orwell for not seeing that in a sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, the, the, uh, the Thorn conversation the Thorn story wasn't given other until we've gotten these references to it here. Um, Emily, that's a good point. And Orwell never had a mother figure to learn better from. Yeah. And I see several of you are uh, referring to, are sort of telling, um, or at least alluding to stories of parents or parents-in-law who still speak to their, you know, 50-year-old children um, this way. And I agree. That's the, the other side of that is very painful too, right? And both realities are very much in play here, right? Both realities are things that we're supposed to be thinking of. Um, it's easy to imagine oneself into Orwell's frame of mind here, but it is equally to, easy to see that it is insulting and damaging to Psyche, and more importantly, 
to Orwell's relationship with Psyche to talk to her like that, right? Um, if you would like to preserve a relationship of mutual love and respect um, with your adult children, pro probably don't do this, right? Um, probably don't do this. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I totally agree, Eric, that it's not healthy for the parents either. Absolutely. Um, but again, notice again, I know this sort of sounds like me defending Orwell, and, uh, but notice again how patient she's being. She's not, um, uh, she's not yelling at her, right? Yet. Um, she is patiently explaining her use of the plural which several of you um, pointed to we hurt you that time but we did right um, those who love must hurt uh, I think she is being specifically imprecise here I think she's being purposefully imprecise um, yeah the fox was almost certainly involved as well but remember how there, there are, well, remembering ahead, um, we're going to see there will be other times in this conversation when she basically is going to be invoking the authority of the Fox and of Bardia, both, on her side, right? Um, to basically attempt to maneuver Psyche into a position where Psyche is being asked to acknowledge that she is all on her own against everyone that she loves and respects, right? Um, I think that her use of we there is the first gestures in that direction. Um, I represent all of the grown-ups that you have always loved, admired, and respected, right? I speak in the, vo the collective voice of all of them, vaguely. Right. I think that's what she's she's going for there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Fire Swans, yeah, you were thinking very similarly there. I think I think that's right. Um, uh, Morgul Hamster asks a great question. Is she right? Must we hurt those we love? In the sense she's talking about here? Absolutely. Yeah. Completely. Completely. Those who love must hurt. In exactly the take the thorn out kind of sense. Right? Um, do you know what you are? If you are a parent who ensures that your child always is pleased always is happy, always gets just exactly what they want at every moment of every day, so that no moment of their day is clouded by the vaguest thwarting of their will, you are a bad parent <laughs> if that's what happens, right? Um, uh, I mean, that's simply the reality, right? Um, it is true that those who love must hurt. Uh, if you love your child, say no to them, right? If you love your child, show them the way to go. Don't just let them go any way that they 
think is not right. I mean, I mean, like that's yes, absolutely. She's right. She's right about the pulling out of thorns, <laughs> right? Cal Elrod says hashtag Dudley Dursley. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Um, um, yeah, yeah. So again, like, is she right? Yeah, totally right, totally right in one sense, right? Um, what she's saying isn't wrong. It's just ill applied. If she were actually speaking to a six-year-old. There'd be nothing wrong with that paragraph, right? Um, I mean, again, even even sentences like, you will let me rule and guide you. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's a little heavy for a conversation with a six-year-old, but, like, you know, you can have a go. Um, that might fly. Um, uh, but, yeah, the, the problem is that's not the situation. And notice how Psyche immediately goes there. Orwell, I have a husband to guide me now. Right? It was difficult not to be angered or terrified by her harping on it. I bit my lip, then said, Alas, child, it is about that very husband, as you call him, that I must grieve you. Right? Um, ouch. By saying, I have a husband to guide me now, she is on the one hand playing a sort of trump card, right, um, over the parental authority that, um, you know, so the um, Orwell has decided to, 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 to lead this conversation, right, um, with a strong parental authority play, right? And Psyche immediately plays her trump card there, actually. But it's not just about like, oh, hey, I don't have to obey you anymore, teehee, right? She's, by saying... I'm a married adult woman. She's also saying, dude, I'm not, in fact, a six-year-old, right? I am an independent and adult woman who is now married, right? So it's not just that she has a husband to whom she must, whom, you know, whom she must obey, especially when he's the god. But, um, but again, she's quite gently pointing out, um, that um, she's quite gently pointing out that the entire approach that Orwell has just taken, true as it is in a different context, is not in any way appropriate here. But of course, in doing so, in making that emphasis, she has... Um, uh, struck a nerve, right? And Orwell's response is to be both angered and terrified. One or the other, maybe both, by her harping on it. She just mentioned it the once. I mean, she had talked about it before, right? But that she just immediately goes there, right? About the husband. It's uh, angering and terrifying. Um... Yeah, husband-wife stuff really sets Orwell off. Absolutely agree with you, Leafus Starlight. Yes. Um, oh, Mighty Felix, what a marvelous question. Does it ever occur to Orwell that if we must hurt those we love, maybe Psyche must hurt her? No. 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 Don't think it does. Though Psyche has been gently trying to say that, right? And trying to soften that blow. I still love you, 
right? Um, but I, I can't be what you want me to. I can't remain your child. I've grown up. I'm married now. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, okay. Um, But think, Psyche. Nothing that's beautiful hides its face. Nothing that's honest hides its name. No, no, listen. In your heart you must see the truth, however you try to brazen it out with words. Think. Whose bride were you called? The brutes. And think again. If it's not the brute, who else dwells in these mountains? Thieves and murderers, men worse than brutes, and lecherous as goats, we may be sure. Are you a prize they'd let pass if you fell in their way? There's your lover, child. Either a monster, shadow and monster in one, maybe, a ghostly undead thing, or a salt villain whose lips, even on your feet or the hem of your robe, would be a stain to our blood. Uh, okay. That's the only options, right? She was silent a long time, her eyes on her lap. And so, Psyche, I began at last, tenderly as I could, but she tossed away the hand that I had laid on hers. You mistake me, Orwell. If I am pale, it is with anger. There, sister, I have conquered it. I'll forgive you. You mean, I'll believe you mean, nothing but good. Yet how, or why, you can have blackened and tormented your soul with such thoughts. But no more of that. If ever you loved me, put them away now. This, um appeal by Psyche here is, I think, it's easy to miss. And it's easiest, it's easy to miss. It's made easy to miss, I believe, because of how quickly Orowal slides past it. Right? And again, Orowal is such a, 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 a persuasive narrator. Right? Um, she's, she's such a compelling narrator, um, you know, narrative voice, that it's easy to lose yourself in the momentum of Orwell's, um own passion and emotions. It's hard not to read this section and never, you know, ask any uncomfortable questions about Orwell and her motivations, I will admit. However, I do think the kind of reading and discussion that we're doing here, the kind of close reading we're doing of these paragraphs, makes Orwell look five times worse than when you just read it at speed. That's Anyway, that's been my experience. My experience is that it is very easy to get drawn in, to get swept away by Orwell's narrative voice. Um, she is always addressing she's she continues to address us as readers she continues to recruit us to her side right um when you stop and really think through what she's saying and what she's doing and the ways that we're doing the ugliness Orwell's ugliness of mind here not just of body and face um becomes clearer right 
Um, but um, but I, I just I just want to point out the fact that I think in some way we're uh, uh, not quite doing Orwell credit. Um, and she doesn't hold up as well when you stop and look at it closely. I'm not saying that the story doesn't hold up as well. It absolutely does. We do, when we stop and really look at it, we can see what lies behind, right? We can see the depths, um, or at least we can begin to see the depths of Orwell's kind of psychological situation, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Orwell's speech, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that in the first half of this slide, because, of course, what we see her, her doing is a kind of rapid-fire regurgitation of both Bardia's and the Fox's analyses, right? Which she throws out at Psyche without attempting to reconcile them, even though they're in opposition to each other. Um... And also notice how much worse she makes them than Bardia or the fox did, right? Remember, the fox was willing to hope maybe the beggar who found Psyche might not be horrible, right? Whereas here, Orwell calls him a salt villain, Um you know, whose lips even on your feet or on the hem of your robe would be a stain to our blood. Um, and uh, after, compared to Bardia's quiet words about the brute, um, uh, Orowal's shadow and monster in one may be a ghostly, undead thing. is a little um, extra, right? Um... So anyway, we get we get those things right, but I want to I want to just touch on because oh, I think it's a really wonderful point. Um, uh, what uh, Jack Rabbit was just saying: nothing that's beautiful hides its face is an assumption Orwell makes because she is not beautiful, and if she were, she wouldn't hide her face. Yeah, yeah. Um, nothing that's beautiful hides its face is a. Um, She's this paragraph is about Psyche's husband, right? But you're absolutely right, Jack Rabbit, that there are ways in which even these accusations, this paragraph itself folds back onto Orowal as well, right? Um, nothing that's beautiful hides its face. Well, then what about you, Orowal, right? And not just you, not just her physical ugliness, right? What about. You know, her own stern love for Psyche here, is that beautiful? Is that showing its face, cl clear, you know, clearly? Um, yeah, a lot of this does sp sort of splash back uh, onto Orowal fairly significantly. Um, and I do really like... Um, uh, I do really like the point... Yeah, uh, Finn Rob Feligand was saying... Um, the way that even Orwell tells us to judge her makes us side with her. Yeah, I agree. That thinking about again how uh, how compelling she is as, as a narrator, um, and we've talked about how honest she is, and certainly 
convinces us that she is on, she's being honest. Um, she's not holding back. Um, certainly not holding back in her own favor. Many of the things that she describes are not only shameful, are not only like wrong, but also shameful, and not and but also just like embarrassing, childish, even. Um, yeah, no, Orwell is not. Well, hang on. Orwell was veiled. She was veiled because I believe she was veiled in mourning. For Psyche still. Um, so she is veiled when, I believe, when she's with Bardia and when she's with Graham. Because, yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, there's actually a moment she takes off her veil when she's with Psyche. Um, but I do believe she put on her veil uh, when she, the description of her getting ready to go, I think, included her putting on her veil. Um, but yes, the the veiling of Orwell that's going to become, that's going to come in in the next, like a couple of chapters down the road, is not quite there yet. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, okay. There is no thinking. There is nowhere in this book where thinking about people's faces whether their faces, faces are covered or revealed, whether their faces are... I mean, like, it's always worthwhile thinking about people's faces in this book. It always works. Um, uh, okay, okay. Um, but let's get back to Psyche's reaction, which is what I mainly wanted to talk about here. Psyche's angry. Um... If I am pale, it is with anger. But watch what happens. Watch what happens. You see the activity, the action that occurs here? There, sister. I have conquered it. I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. Future tense. She declares her determination to forgive Orwell. She first overcomes her passion. Remember, this is exactly what the fox kept telling Orwell to do, and Orwell was, like, not doing a great job of that, right? Letting her passion sweep her away. Here is Psyche experiencing strong passion, but mastering it. Um, she has... I think the fox would say she has progressed further than Orwell has, right? Which again comes back to the whole parent-child shtick that Orwell's got going on in this conversation. But anyway, um, I'll forgive you. I am going to forgive you. I will forgive you. I am making a plan to take a concrete action. I'm choosing to forgive you. I will forgive you does not mean... I no longer feel bothered by what you said. It doesn't mean I think what you did and said was fine. I will forgive you means you just did something bad. I have a kind of right to hold a grudge against you for what you just did. 
but I am making a choice not to do that. I'm, I will forgive you. And then notice in her next sentence, you mean, I'll believe you mean. Future tense again. I am setting myself on the future-oriented course of believing that you mean nothing but good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I... Eric, I don't mean future tense in the sense that she's like, I, you know, I haven't done it yet, but I plan, I, I, you know, I'll forgive you next week or something like that. No, it's it's standing at the point in the present facing the future, right? She is stepping into that future is the point, is, is what we see happening here, right? Um, that is what I will do starting now, right? Um, she is making the deliberate choice to step off into that future where she forgives Orowal for what Orowal said and where she will believe that Orowal means nothing but good. Again, that correction. You mean, she was, she almost said you mean nothing but good. But that is a mere assertion, an interpretive assertion, right? Of Orowal's heart. And she takes it back or she corrects it in the middle. Hang on. No. Not gonna say not going to merely assert that you mean nothing but good. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I'm going to choose to believe that you mean nothing but good. That's the choice I'm going to make. Just I'm making a choice to forgive you. We have seen Orwell make choices like this, though not usually in that direction. Right? But here we see Psyche choosing to give Orwell the benefit of the doubt, choosing to forgive her, choosing to believe that she means nothing but good, that her own love and her own desire to seek Psyche's well-being has led her to say the horrible things that she just said. Um, now, what was, what is Psyche angry at? Exactly. How or why you can have blackened and tormented your soul with such thoughts. But no more of that. If ever you loved me, put them away now. She asks, almost asks, she speculates about two questions. How can Orwell have blackened and tormented her soul with such thoughts? How? How could Orwell think that? How? And then, relatedly, why would Orwell think that? How? You can see why she's... She asks the how question. The answer to the how question is an uncomfortable one. How can Orwell have tormented her soul with such thoughts? Answer, by disbelieving Psyche. By refusing to take Psyche's word for her own experience. Psyche has told her her story. Psyche has told her what happened to her. 
who knows best about Psyche's experience? Is it Psyche who experienced it, or is it Orwell? Well, we see Orwell's perspective on that. She's quite clear about who has the authority on that question, right? Psyche's little more than a child, after all. And yet Psyche... Psyche is now actively choosing to give Orwell the benefit of the doubt before this moment of anger. The reason, the passion she's overcome with is being confronted with the fact that Orwell does not mean nothing but good. Orwell could only say those horrible things about Psyche's, you know, marriage, right, about Psyche's husband, if she didn't believe her. Right. And she seems, Psyche seems, to have not believed that Orowal was capable of that. That's the how. But what about the why? Why would you have tormented your soul with such thoughts? You have to choose that. You had a choice to believe me or not to believe me. Why wouldn't you believe me? Why would that be? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Maureen, yeah, and of course, we don't want to get away from the really simple thing that Orwell said horrible things about her husband that she loves. Absolutely. Right? It's not only on her own behalf that she's offended. Right. Um, my emphasis here has been on Psyche's own perception of her relationship with Orwell and on the damage that Orwell is doing to her relationship with Psyche through that speech. Right. Because that seems to be one of the things that she is... Um, if it weren't for that, if it weren't for Orwell and Psyche's relationship in that way, Neither the how and the why are very hard to understand. How could you blacken and torment your soul with such thoughts? Well, because how how are you to know, right? Um, you know, Bardia and the fox both think it's perfectly natural, right, uh, to conclude that. Um, why is it that Psyche is surprised to hear that Orwell thinks this way? these ways because she believed that she had enough capital, right, relationship capital with Orwell that Orwell would at least be willing to believe what she told her and not assume one of the two things, you know, the Bardia thing or the Fox thing. Um, yeah. And Ambrosius Aurelianus, of course, you're perfectly right. Um, that it's not only um, the reaction of a wife for her beloved husband, but also of a worshiper for her beloved God. Yes. Yeah, there's blasphemy involved there as well. Yep. Yep. Um, true. Uh, last thing to notice, and I'm making very slow progress through my slides today, which does not augur well, but I don't care. Um, notice 
the substance of Psyche's appeal. Having just done what she just did, she says, no more of that, if ever you loved me, put them away now. Having just made in real time, while she was talking, her own positive decisions, her own decisions of love and forgiveness and benefit of the doubt that she is extending to Orwal, she now calls upon Orwal to reciprocate. If ever you loved me, put them away now. She puts it on the table. Make the choice. You can make the choice to believe me. And yes, Eric, I do think there's an echo there. Um, put them away is the kind of phrase you use of childish things when it's time to grow up. Yeah, I do think I do think there's an echo there. Put them put these thoughts away from you. Um, and yes, um, as several of you were pointing out the like reverse parental thing. Um, we see Psyche being a good parent here um, and acting more and more parental all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. When Orwald tries to back up her horrible statements um, with the authority of the fox in Bardia, Psyche says, You have told them my story, Orwald? It was ill done. I gave you no leave. My lord gave you no leave. My lord gave no leave. Oh, Orwald, it was more like Bata than you. Bata, the, the uh, palace gossip, malicious gossiper. I could not help it if my face reddened with anger, but I would not be turned aside. Doubtless, I said, there is no end to the secrecy of this, this husband, as you call him. Child, has his vile love so turned your brain that you can't see the plainest thing? A god? Yet on your own showing, he hides and slinks and whispers mum and keep counsel and don't betray me like a runaway slave. I am not certain she had listened to this. What she said was, the fox too? That is very strange. I never thought he would have believed in the brood at all. I had not said that he did. But if that was what she took out of my words, I thought it no part of my duty to set her right. It was an error helping her towards the main truth. I had need of all help to drive her thither. Um. <laughs> Sorry. The curious chances. I can't believe it's not bad. <laughs> Yikes. Um. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um. And yes, yes, Eric is quoting First Corinthians thirteen, uh, which is where that the the that echo comes from. When I was a child, I talked as a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away, uh, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Um, I put away the things of childhood. Yeah, exactly. I, I do think that that's where the the echo lies in that very famous passage. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, uh, yes, Mighty Felix, I think you have exactly caught uh, Orwal here. 
I have said many times, I was just saying a couple minutes ago, that Orwell is a very honest narrator. Most of the time. There are a couple times when I think we can catch her in a piece of dishonesty. Not just a time when she lies to, an, when her character, you know, when she in the past lied to another character in the past. She will sometimes describe something like that or even, even confess it. Um, that she spoke something that wasn't true. But her narration has generally been reliable, or seemed so anyway. Um, has been honest. But that moment that Mighty Felix was pointing to, um, I think, is exactly um, a moment where we catch her being dishonest with us. I could not help it if my face reddened with anger. Oh, I'm sure your face reddened. Right? Um, Orwell is terribly and unexpectedly wrong-footed by this. It never even occurred to her that she was not allowed to tell Psyche's story to other people. She told Bardia and she told the fox without a second thought. It never occurred to her. And when she's confronted with this, it was ill done. I gave you no leave. She is getting scolded like she is the child. And what's more, she knows she's in the wrong. It's true. Psyche didn't give her permission. She was wrong to tell other people the story without, um, uh, without, she, she was wrong to tell the story without permission. And she knows it. Is she feeling anger here? Yeah, it's not technically a lie, I think. Is she angry? Yes, she's angry. But I think she's embarrassed. I think she's blushing. There's shame here. Shame which the anger is covering here. And I think that that's significant. I think that that's significant because... This is also, in this very moment, a place where we see her act dishonestly towards Psyche as well. Not by an active lie, but by an active omission of the truth. What she had just said, I didn't quote the thing that she had just said, but the thing that she had just said you made it sound accidentally sound. I, I don't think Orwell intended it. Um, sound as if the fox and Bardia were both united in agreeing that the her husband must be the brute, right? Um, and uh, Psyche is just like, whoa, really? can't believe the fox believed in the brood at all. That's so weird. Right? Um, notice, by the way, the thing that Orwell said that has confused Psyche. We saw in her um, 
charged statement about the husband, uh, the brute, or the criminal. Um, how she proposes these two contradictory theories of Bardia and the fox and spits them both out at once in one paragraph um, at Psyche as if they were not in any way contradictory, right? Though they clearly are. Um, uh, it's that muddle, right? The fact that she's just throwing these things out there as if they don't contradict, as if Bardia and the Fox are somehow united against Psyche, which totally not true, right? Um, it's that sloppiness that she's using, which was sort of the first dishonesty, and now she allows the um, the misunderstanding to stand, right? Because it helps her towards the main truth. Um, if error will help her to get there, then it's, it is no part of her duty to set her right. Um, lots of rationalization here. Um, I think that this passage is important for a couple reasons. One, because we do see that Orwell can lie to us, that sometimes she is insufficiently honest with herself to be honest with us. But secondly, um, we can see that this is a this is a a, a significant erosion of Orwell's um, moral standing here, um, a demonstration of the weakness of Orwell's argument here. Um, yeah, Psyche's response. But what is all this to me? How should they know? I am his wife. I know. How can you know if you have never seen him? Or, um, oh, sorry, I messed up. That should be a new paragraph, I think. How can you know if you have never seen him? Orwell, how can you be so simple? I, how could I not know? But how, Psyche? What am I to answer to such a question? It's not fitting. It is, and especially to you, sister, who are a virgin. That matronly primness from the child she was went near to ending my patience. It was almost, but I think now she did not mean it so, as if she taunted me. Yet I ruled myself. Look at who's overcoming passion. So admirable. Well, if you are so sure, Psyche, you will not refuse to put it to the test. What test? though I need none myself. Um, Psyche here comes to the core issue that she was already pointing at before. I, I don't, at the end of the day, really care what Bardia's theory is or what the Fox's theory is. They're theorizing about something they don't know about. They can't know about. They've never experienced. Orwell herself has experienced more just by coming up onto the mountaintop and into the valley. Right? Bardia's been closer than the Fox in this respect. Um, but, um, I mean, he at least saw Psyche herself. 
but uh, but he doesn't he doesn't go into the valley, right? He's not sitting on the steps of the palace. He is not given a vision of the palace itself, right? Like Orwell is, and yet Psyche, she's experienced it. She's experienced it. How can you know what he's not like a, a, a you know, lustful salt villain or an undead ghost thing? And Psyche's like, is this a trick question? Price, like, Orwell, how can you be so simple? I, how could I not know? It's like I, she, as she's like, do you want me to? What are the things that Psyche is not saying here? And I'm not saying that we need to get X-rated about this. I'm just saying, um, to put it lightly. There are other senses other than sight or a wall, and I have employed those, all of the rest of them, probably, in one way or another, right? She has experienced her husband um, very directly. Um, for Orwell to say, how can you know if you've never seen him, sounds to, to Psyche simple. Simple. Uh, like, it's like, how can you be so simple? How, 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 I mean, that's, um, it, that's ridiculous. How am I to answer such a question? How? How can I know him? I mean, I, and she stumbles here. She's like, I can't, what? I, do you want to play by play? Like, seriously? Like, no, I can't do that. It's not fitting. Especially to you who are a virgin. Like, you have never known someone in this way. By the way, um, Psyche's Psyche's experience here, um, there's one group of people who would be utterly unable to comprehend Psyche's certainty. And that's heroes of Shakespearean comedies. Um, who seem almost universally incapable of telling one woman from another in the dark, right? I mean, that's um, <laughs> that many times is seen, right? Um, it's <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, with the exception of Shakespearean comic heroes, um, I. Anyway, <laughs> that's Twelfth Night in a Nutshell. Yeah, it's like all of Shakespeare's, most of Shakespeare's comedies, right? Um, yeah, my Felix, I was thinking about Arthur and his knights too, right? Yeah, like a knight with his visor down, also utterly unrecognizable, right? Same kind of rule. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, it's well known that if lights are off or armor is involved, humans are completely indistinguishable from each other. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, but of course, that's exactly the thing that Lewis is kind of brushing against here, right? Um, there's a kind of there's a different kind of realism at play here in both of those cases, both in Sir Thomas Mallory, which 
many of us read together, right, over the course of like an entire year. Um, in Sir Thomas Mallory, there's this like polite fiction that we're supposed to accept, right? It makes the story go. And we are asked, as readers almost explicitly asked, to indulge that belief, right? To accept it as a parameter of the narrative. And if we do, the rest of the story goes on just fine, right? Um, and that's the same thing in Shakespearean comedies, right? We are asked to just accept that fact, right? Um, and... Um, Lewis, here, Psyche, is having none of that, right? Um, this, sorry, the polite fiction uh, in Shakespearean comedies, the polite fiction that you can't tell one woman from another in the dark. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, Jack Rabbit, it's true. Um, that the same thing happens with Jacob and Leah. Uh, but I'm pretty sure there's alcohol involved, which is also sometimes true of Shakespearean comic heroes. I will also concede. Um, but not always. <laughs> not always. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it, Genesis doesn't explicitly say that Jacob was hammered when he was led to his tent um, at the end of the wedding ceremony, but I, I have a hard time reading that story without imagining that that is true. Um, anyway, um, exactly, it's the long wedding feast uh, that, anyway, yeah, I, I think uh, um, especially um given the uh, the other precedent like the story with the creepy story with Lot and his daughters also makes me think that the whole getting drunk and you know I, I just I, I, I think there was liquor whatever anyway not important um, I hear um, her matronly primness right um Notice with, uh, notice with, um, Orowal here. Notice what bothers her. What bothers her, first and foremost, is this moment, once again, a piece of evidence. Going back to the, remember the very beginning of the conversation? When Orwell comes on strong with the maternal talk, right, with the parental authority, and um, uh, and Psyche immediately plays the "but I am married now," i.e., not a child anymore card, right? Um, and once again, she's being confronted by that fact, that matronly primness from the child she was this almost desperate assertion. Um, it was absurd. I, I, it makes me impatient 
that a child like her would indulge in such matronly primness. No, what you're being confronted with is evidence that she is an adult and quite independent of you. And in some ways, in that one way, like the fact that Psyche is not a virgin, that Psyche has experienced, has had an adult experience that um, Orwell has not, is not only evidence that Psyche is no longer a child, but it's evidence that Psyche has, in at least one way, in fact, gone beyond Orwell in experience. Orwell tries to, you know, be like, I am the experienced one who has the authority because I know much and you know little, right? There is at least one thing which, of which Psyche unquestionably has knowledge and experience that Orwell does not, and Orwell knows she has no rebuttal against that. Orwell is still a virgin. Psyche is not. And that is like the whole tip of the iceberg, right? Um, uh, that is tip of the experiential, I, I like the just one way in which if you concede that thing, right? Um, if Orwell were to concede that thing, then it undermines the entire posture that she's taking from the start. Um, yes. Um, Oh, Orwell, what evil you think! The reason I cannot look at him, least of all by such trickery as you'd have me do, is that he has forbidden me. I can think, Bardia and the Fox can think, of one reason only for such a forbidding, and of one only for your obeying it. Then you know little of love. You fling my virginity in my face again, do you? Better it than the sty you're in, so be it. Of what you now call love, I do know nothing. You can whisper about it to Redival better than to me, or to Ungit's girls, maybe, or the king's doxies. I know another sort of love. You shall find what it's like. You shall not. Orwell, Orwell, you are raving, said Psyche, herself unangered, gazing at me large-eyed, sorrowful, but nothing humble about her sorrow. You would have thought she was my mother, not I, almost, hers. I had known this long time that the old, meek, biddable psyche was gone forever, yet it shocked me afresh. Um, yes, Jackie, you're exactly right that she's throwing the fox in there to bolster her position, and like the fox, psyche is disturbed by Orwell's behavior. Yes, you are raving is just exactly what the fox said, right? Um, yes, the way that she... Orwell brings in the fox to supplement her authority and yet acts in exactly the way that makes the fox literally throw his hands up in the air, right? Um, there's intense irony there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Um, Interesting, Sarah. Sarah says, it's so sad that Orwell keeps having these insights and keeps totally ignoring them. Yes. Yes. Um, oh, the richness 
of that one short sentence of Psyche's, then you know little of love. If they can think of only one reason for her obeying such a forbidding. By the way, I'm not even sure what it is. Fear? I mean, there's actually a whole variety of like unsavory reasons that Orwell seems to be hinting at, right? Fear, possibly. Uh, uh, what? Lust? Um, like, yeah, he's a salt villain, but he's good in bed, so what the heck? Like, I mean, I'll, she gets, she goes there, right? Um, comparing Psyche to the king's doxies, uh, to the king's, to the king's uh, mistresses, right? Then you know little of love is the wisdom of Psyche there. If you can only think of these reasons for obeying it, um, he has forbidden me to see his face, and I love him and trust him, so I don't want to see his face because I trust him. I know him and love him and trust him. That's a reason. The cruelly painful irony of this moment is, of course, that's what Orwell herself was banking on in this whole conversation. Because you love me and care about me and trust me, you should listen to me and do what I say. Like, that's the entire capital she's spending in this conversation. And yet, she can't see it, won't see it, refuses to see it as being applied by Psyche to her husband. Right? This husband and Psyche's love for her husband and desire to obey her husband and... Um, you know, this reverence for her divine husband is something that has driven her to impatience. And that, by the way, I think is another little slight dishonesty in Orwell's narration. Um, does it make her come close to losing her patience? Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm saying it's not the whole story, right? There's more to it than that. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Fanaro, you're certainly right. Um, Orwell has never had a physical relationship and never will. Um, I imagine her idea of romantic love as being much simpler. Yes. One of the saddest things about Psyche's statement is that it's perfectly true as respect to Eros. Ha! <laughs> I, I made it funny. Eros, of course, is the Greek name of the god who marries Psyche, right? She does indeed know little of Eros. Um, she does not know the god. Um, uh, <laughs> wasn't even actually... I just meant sexual love. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, like literally it's literally Eros, right? That, she, that, uh, anyway. So, um, but the point is, yes, she does not know anything about romantic love. 
right um it, it's true and sad it's she's never had that opportunity it's one of the reasons why psyche is so important to her why psyche is all that she has or at least why she feels that psyche is all that she has right um Oh, Ambrosius, I, I totally think it's an intentional pun on Lewis's part. Um, yes. Yes. Um, absolutely. That Eros sexual love is the thing that Oroal... Notice, just as any reference to um, Psyche's... Whenever Psyche says, my husband... Orwell gets mad and impatient, right? Just so, any reference to her sexual relationship, to her eros with her husband, and therefore indirectly to Orwell's own virginity, also sets Orwell off in the same way, right? Yeah, it's all about, it's all about the eros there. Um... And yes, uh, JJ, you're right. There's the the her own that she is willing to she Orwell partly, no doubt, Fanaro, as you suggest, because of her ignorance, knows nothing of eros, of what you now call love. Eros, sexual love. I do know nothing. And she prides herself on that. She looks down on sexual love. That's like a red of all thing. Kissing Tarin under the window. That's an ungit thing. People going to copulate with ungit's girls in the temple. That's a, a king's mistresses things. And all the bastards, the bastard children, right, running around the palace, remember, that was described. Um, she speaks with disdain of that kind of love. Because, of course, Psyche is perfectly right. You know little of love. She doesn't. She knows very little indeed of Eros. Because you're right, Emily, she's never seen a healthy sexual relationship in her entire life. Never has. Um, yeah. And Judy, Psyche's devotion absolutely does go beyond a sexual connection. I'm not trying to reduce Psyche's relationship with the god only to Eros. Though that's hard to say without feeling odd about it because it is Eros, the god. But whatever. Um, I... Uh, yeah, I'm not trying to reduce it to merely, like, sexual desire. That's not the point. Um, the point, in many ways, what I'm coming back to is that sentence, then you know little of love. Um, of course, some of you I know um, know C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves when he talks about the four different Greek words 
which can be translated as love. Eros, sexual love. Philia, friendship. Storge, which is like affection for family members. Um, and uh, agape. And I th through this passage, when we're kind of flopping back and forth between different senses of love, sexual love, that, like, Eros... <laughs> I just have to say it without stopping to laugh at it. The Eros love is definitely at play here in this conversation. Or in this exchange right here. So is the Storge love. The mother love. Mother-child love. Major thing going on here. So is Agape, which uh, Psyche was just showing to Orwal when she forgave her and decided to think nothing but the best of her. So too even is Philia, um, the friendship that the two of them have had as sisters throughout their lives. Um, so uh, all of um, all of those loves are relevant to these two women, right? To this situation, uh, to the thing that they're talking about, and when when Psyche says, "You know little of love," I think she's referring to romantic love, like that's the the primary referent of that sentence. Uh, you don't understand, like what marriage, what being married is like, if you can't think of any good reason for obeying such a forbidding. But of course, once she says it, it resonates outward. No, Orwell doesn't. She does know little of love, of any kind of love. And this is both, this is tragic, tragic in multiple ways, right? Um, tragic because Orwell is showing herself, as much as she's convinced herself that she's the one showing stern love, the deepest kind of love for Psyche in this conversation. She's shown, indeed, that she knows little of love. And, of course, as several of you have pointed out, she has herself received little love, comparatively little love. No love from her own parents. Abuse from her father, her mother, dead at a young age. Um, except, well, there was the fox, and there was Psyche, and there was Redival. So there was some love around, but, um, yeah. It is, Maureen, such an intense dialogue. Uh, a total transfer of power and reversal of mother-daughter roles in this scene. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right, well... I didn't do too well. Uh, no, okay. Well, we'll have to finish chapter four. We'll finish the apocalypses next time. Um... Next time, 
odds are we won't get past chapter 15 next time. These central chapters are really important. I promise we're going to move a little faster after chapter 15. Um, we're going to hit on some things, but there will be a number of chapters where we will go faster, I promise. Um, but um, we will... I'm going to spend some time on chapter 15. I was choosing passages for chapter 15, and I was like, uh, what on earth do I skip? Is there a skippable paragraph in this chapter? Not sure there is. So I didn't skip many of them. Um, but, um, yeah, so... Reread chapter 14 and 15. Um, we'll try to... We'll try to go on and... Um, uh, I'll see if we can get past it, but no promises. Yes, next week... Oh, no. Shoot. Next week is Thanksgiving week. I cannot meet next week because I will be picking up my adult child, whom I will try not to address as a six-year-old, um, uh, at the airport next week during class time. So, um... Uh, so yes, not meeting Wednesday of Thanksgiving week, as I will be uh, delightedly picking up my child from the airport. Um, so it'll be the week after that, the 29th of November. Absolutely. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. Um, don't forget to uh, don't forget to fill out the form again, because I'm going to do another drawing, and we'll have two weeks to do the drawing. But don't forget to fill it out uh, if you haven't yet. So we can enter you for drawing number two, which will happen in two weeks. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.